Hello, welcome to the Full English, the United Kingdom's Airbnb podcast, the place to learn how to buy, host and grow your Airbnb business, specifically in the United Kingdom, helping you to learn, grow and become an Airbnb success. This is my conversation with Jeff Waller. Jeff has worked a full career as police detective and subsequently taken on high-level corporate roles at the likes of Microsoft. His most recent challenge is his foray into the short-term rental business. I was keen to have Jeff on the show as his properties are in North Wales within the vicinity of the stunning Snowdonia National Park. When I first became interested in short-term lets, it was as a result of listening to great success stories of Airbnbs in national parks in the States such as the Joshua Tree National Park in California. So I've been keen to find out more about short-term lets in and around our great British national parks, especially what makes a good short-term let and what the main challenges one will encounter uh, when taking one on. Jeff has used all of his clearly very practical lifelong experience and turned it exceptionally well to property development. The site he purchased was overgrown and neglected. The land was waterlogged and some of the buildings derelicts, yet he managed to turn it into a thriving business, making great profits and significantly increasing the value of the land. Jeff's story is not for the faint-hearted, and to do what he has done has taken skill, patience, along with a financial position which has enabled him to take the time required to deliver this development. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And now, my conversation with Jeff Waller. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, good. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Let's jump straight in, Jeff. I always like to start with a bit of a background on my guests and a bit of an understanding as kind of where you've come from and how you've got into short-term lets and, and property and the like. Uh, I know, as we've, to be fair, as with most of my guests, I know you've got uh, an interesting sort of professional background. Um, just tell us a little bit about sort of your life pre-short um, lets and how yes. you've how you've come around into that. Well, you know, you look back on life and you think, "Bloody, did all that really happen?" But you know, with my life, yes, it did. I, I was um, I come from a very military family, and it was a foregone conclusion that at some stage I'd go in the forces. Uh, everyone expected me to go in the army. Um, applied for and was accepted for a commission, uh, and then joined the police force instead because the uh, offer came through first. So I was a cop in London. Um, always wanted to be a detective. Once to join the police, so uh, I was working in uniform in South East London. Applied for and then um, got accepted as a detective. I got posted to the East End of London. Uh, loved working there. Had a great time and uh, decided to specialise. So I joined Specialist Operations up at Scotland Yard, where I was on the Computer Crime Unit, which was a division of the Fraud Squad, and I was bouncing around the world investigating crime, really. Um, saw some incredible places, went to, had a good time, really. Um, I did 22 years, and then went on a career break. Uh, There's a lot of cyber crime, was there, there, Jeff? A lot of cyber oh, crime, is it? a lot. That's when it first started, you know, the, mm. uh, the early mid-90s. Um, Cybercrime was very much in its infancy, but uh, organised crime had taken hold of it greatly and used it as a mm. tool. And um, 
it, it, it was all happening and nobody was addressing it. Um, so you had all sorts of things going on and nobody was looking at it apart from my unit. So we were really pretty much bouncing around the world at the cutting edge of investigation. So you know, I had exchanges with America and Australia and Africa and goodness knows what. Uh, so we did a lot. Um, and then I went on a career break uh, and um, got picked up by Microsoft. I asked to join Microsoft as one of Bill Gates' detectives. So I was Bill Gates' detective? What does a Bill Gates' detective do for a living then? Well, we were regionalised. So I was looking after Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, anything involving him as a victim, the company as a victim or members of staff of the company committing fraud on the, on, on the company or, or malfeasance on the company. So anything that involved the company or had a company aspect for it, we investigated. And trust me, there was a lot of stuff going on. Hmm. Um, you know, a big company like that uh, is always a target for crime, always has been, always will be. So that gave me a flat flavour for the corporate world. I thoroughly enjoyed it, saw the world in all its uh, various colours and denominations. And then um, 2013, I went to work in Switzerland for uh, Zurich Insurance and then finished up as Global Director of Investigations for the Takeda Corporation, which is a Japanese pharma company. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2000, what was it? 2019, my accountant said, uh, you know, you can afford to retire if you wanted to. I was living in Zurich at the time. I thought, well, what am I doing here? Um, so I thought about the next chapter in the book, you know, where you're yep. going to work next. And um, always had a hankering for um, having holiday lets because we had um, got a couple of bites of lets down in London anyway. Um, but fancied to go on holiday lets. So we were coming back from Zurich and looking around Wales because that's where my wife was brought up in North Wales. Mm -hmm. The caveat that I had is I wanted to see some seaside and a bit of um, mountainside because I love them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we looked at loads and loads of places and then came across Lechadur, um, which is uh, on the Flint Peninsula, um, looking at Anglesey and, um, and uh, beautiful coastline there. Fell in love with this place and um, bought it. Um, so we've got 10 acres here, we've got a large lump of land a lake on it and had some very old uh, buildings on it which needed renovation and the land was in a despicable state really so we've um, spent the last few years doing that. Who did you buy that piece of land from then? Um, what kind of landowner was that? Um, it used to be a farm I mean the, the place we're living in it's been a farm since um, the 1610 I think is the earliest reference we can find to it. So if you've bought the if you bought the whole farm or is it carved up into um into different plots? Well, there were the farm was a lot bigger in land scale than it is now. Um, I think about two hundred and fifty acres, but we've got twelve we've got twelve mm -hmm. acres. Um, so land was parcelled up, if you like. Mm -hmm. the, the house we're living in is dates from eighteen forty, but it's on the footprint of a really old place, you know, the really uh, original place. And Clackadour, I don't know if you aware of it, like it in Welsh means water from slate, okay. hidden water. Now, the footprint and the cellars on our place is the original house. So you go down our um, cellar hatchway, you go down the stairs, which are all worn slate, and the cellars are carved from stone. And in the middle of the floor, there's like a cauldron carved in stone, and there's a, a natural spring that bubbles up into it and goes out through a channel onto the land, hidden water or water mm -hmm. from Hence the name of the place. Um, and we've got uh, an old Do you farm. use that water? 
No, well, no, not at the moment, but I'd love to, because I'd love to live off-grid, totally off-grid. So at yeah. the moment, is, it, you know, is it clean enough to drink? Well, it's spring water. It's mountain mm. water. So, yeah, it's, it's fine. I mean, you'd have to have um, some sort of uh, purification plant for it, um, but it's, it's spring water. Um, at the moment, we channel it into a lake, uh, which we've stopped with trout and carp and the rest of it, so, and they seem to like it enough, so it must be fairly pure, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we spent the last few years just renovating the land, because the land was completely overgrown. Um, we've got an old farm that dates to the 17th century, and a bothy that dates to uh, the 16th century, then the end of the year, the rest of those into holiday lands. So you've got so there's a main house there's a main house on the site which is which is your primary residence where you live uh, all of, all of the year most of the year yes, all of the year yeah. and then just um, try and paint a picture for us of the other properties that that are on this site the main house we have the main house um, and where we are is in the Clint Peninsula um, and we're looking down at what's called the Pilgrim's Walk now that looks at Holyhead Holy Island if you like in Anglesey. Uh, which is where Christianity was brought to the UK from St. Patrick, land from the Holy Island, walked down to Bethelli, and for hundreds of years, the bottom of our land was the Pilgrim's Walk, hence the Bothy, because the Bothy was put there as a, a small accommodation to stop people who were using the road as a, a droving road or something like that, driving cattle to market or pilgrims, stop them raiding barns and, um, and haystacks to sleep in. So it was put there and people would stay there. So we've got the original Bothy down the end of the land, which looks over the sea. And then further back, closer to the house, we've got a big old um, 17th century barn made of stone. They're all made of stone. Um, and we've renovated both of them. What have you done to the barn? The barn was split into two cottages. So we've got Pipistrel and Horseshoe Cottage, which are named after the bats that you know, reside around the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've converted those... Um, back into cottages originally they probably were cottages at some stage because there were places for floor joists mm. in the walls where floor joists used to be mm. uh, obviously at some point in its life had the floors taken out and was used as a barn so we've completely renovated that um, put flooring in it um, that proof course turned it into cottages one's got two bedrooms one's got one bedroom and there's an upside downer so the small one pipistrel um, is an upside down cottage, so you've got the bedroom downstairs and the living room upstairs. Mm-hmm. Juliet balconies at the end of them, looking over the land. Um, Horseshoe Cottage has two bedrooms with two en suites, um, and Horseshoe has uh, an entertainment area, a hot tub, uh, as does the Bothy. Um, yeah. So it was, mm-hmm. To me, it was um, looking at the potential for places, and thinking, you know, having a vision that could be really beautiful. Mm. So that's what we put our efforts into, you know, so mm-hmm. something that was really getting quite dilapidated into something which is beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and this, this is quite a, um, almost quite a development project that you have undertaken here. And I know you've had various challenges um, as as you've moved through that process. I think there's been some planning challenges uh, and some building challenges, both in terms of the natural challenges that you get with a very old building, but also some quite specific um, statutory stroke building control challenges that you've come across as well. Um, I think talk us through both of those. And I think first of all, um, in chronological order, so the planning challenges that you've come up with or you've come up against um, on that project, talk us through that from a planning point of view. Well, 
planning permission is obviously something you have to apply for. Um, and it seems that in certain regions of the UK, the planning authorities think of how they can stop you rather than how they can help you or what you can do. Um, that's something that we encountered here. So we put in a full planning application and it took months to actually get some sort of result for it. Did you hire a local local architect yes, to help you with that? Yes, did the drawings. We contacted the planning authority initially. Said, look, this is what we fancy doing. What do you think? And they said, yeah, go for it. So we applied for it. And the hoops you had to jump through, it, it was quite staggering, really. So we had to have a wildlife um, survey. So they came down um, all night and surveyed what sort of wildlife we had in the area, what bats we had, and so you had mm. to have a bat survey see if there was anything resident in the barn and uh, what provisions you had to make for them if they were. Um, was there anything in the barn? Yeah, bats. Horseshoe the pipistrol bats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pipistrol horseshoe bats, which yeah. are lovely. I mean, they're great. You see them flapping around. And it's quite funny, actually, because the, the survey lady, I call her bat woman, uh, yeah. for, for want of a better word, she came down and she was standing, oh, so you've got loads of bats around here. I said, well, I can't see or hear anything. And she switched something on her um, computer and you could hear them chattering. It's amazing. Wow. You can't hear anything. All of a sudden, you've got this noise everywhere. Um, and what I thought were moths. I mean, in fact, bats. They're beautiful animals. They're really quite incredible. So they made provision for those. We put bat boxes up and they still reside in the east of some of the places. And they don't mm -hmm. do any harm whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that was quite interesting. And uh, the planning application took months, and uh, eventually they said, well, we think we're going to refuse it. Said, Why? Well, your place never was um, uh, never was used as a residence. I said, well, a bit to differ. Well, no, according to our records, uh, it wasn't a residence, and it'd be oversaturated with holiday lets in that area. So, Why is that? Said, well, you're opposite a hotel. And uh, actually, we're not opposite a hotel, because mm. that used to be a hotel 20 years ago. It's now a private house, um, and they've been part of that, and so uh, lots of to and fro in. Uh, and um, the planning officer was replaced for whatever reason, and the new person picked it up and obviously was far more pragmatic and sensible. He said, Well, I think it's a great idea. Why don't you do it? Please, you know, I can't think of any reason why should, we should refuse it. Mm -hmm. So it's later, we got the authority. And so, so this so this gave you planning permission to convert the barn to get two yep. units in the barn. What else did it get you permission to do? Um, just renovate the renovate the grounds, really. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Bothy already was the building in its own right, so we're just restoring that back to some semblance of order. Um, so it was develop the, um, the barn, uh, convert it into two cottages instead of one unit, and uh, allow it for um, letting out as holiday lands. And it, it, it's it's quite it's quite a rigmarole actually, and it's not for the faint-hearted. So I don't think that you know if you if you've got a building that you want to um, mm. put somebody in or uh, or let out, you can just do it because you can't. Mm. And you could invest thousands of pounds in a, in a project and then have them turn around and say no, you can't do that. Take it all down. Put it back to mm. money. Mm. So that that takes you through through the um the planning journey, which is half of the battle. Yeah. Um, in my experience, uh, and then you move on to the challenge of actually um, refurbishing some of these pretty much ancient buildings. Let's be fair that you've got you've got on the site there. Um, what were the main challenges that you came across uh, with refurbishing those buildings? How did you get 
I know there were some technical bits that you would tell us about, um, you know, what builders did you use? What trades did you use? Uh, did you get a main contractor in to do the whole thing? Did you break it down into trades? Did you do bits yourself? Um, well, first of all, the land. The land was an issue because it was very much neglected. So you have 10 acres that hadn't been touched for donkey's years. So it was very overgrown. So what, what does that look like then, neglected land in uh, the north of Wales that's been left for 10 years? What, what does that look like? Well, if you imagine brambles, the height of a house, yeah. if you imagine willow, well, not, not willow trees, but pussy willow, the horrible uh, spindly willow, which spreads everywhere underground, choking everything. And um, you imagine like a jungle that you can't even push a, a broomstick through. That's pretty much what we had on half of our land. Um, and because we have natural springs everywhere, the bottom part of the land where the Bothy was, or is, was like a marsh. Mm -hmm. um, it was very marshy land. Now, of course, you've got damp issues with that, so you have to address everything. First of all, clear the land, get rid of the stuff that's there. And, and that's, that's clear that land. That's just a, um, I say just, well, it's some sort of heavy machinery coming around, is it, and effectively scraping it all back and um, bur burning it, presumably? Or? You don't... You don't want to damage the land overly, um, but pussy willow, it spreads underground, so you've got to rip up the roots. So it's getting rid of the original tree and then getting rid of the spurs that are, that are everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if you get, get somebody to come over and scrape the, scrape the land, that's going to cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, did, it wasn't a cheap exercise anyway, but, you know, so we were getting rid of it where we found it, making sure the saps, you know, the, the tapping roots had gone. Um, chipping most of the stuff and uh, logging anything that was halfway reasonable for uh, mm -hmm. burning because we've got wood burning stoves here. Mm -hmm. So four years, four or five years worth of logs come out in the Good first stuff. year, which mm -hmm. is crazy, which drying out, and the rest was chipped to make paths around the lake. We've got a lake there, um, which was completely overgrown as well. Um, so we, we carved out a, a, a walk, a pathway to go right the way around the lake and used the wood chip to make a, you know, an even um, footpath around it. Um, we then put in a load of French drains in the marshy areas, which dried it out astronomically the first year, it really did. Um, so we re-diverted some of the springs. Mm. The and just to explain to our listeners exactly what a French drain, exactly what French, French drain, drain is. It's, it's a plastic pipe and it has holes drilled in all the way around it to allow water to drain into it to drain away. So it's like a pipe, if you like, holes on the top, so water can come from the, work, um, from the surface of the earth, go into the pipe and be drained away. You surround it in um, uh, pea gravel so that it doesn't get choked and overgrown. You cover it in pea gravel and water can drain very quickly from the land. So you put like a network of this, did you, across the yeah. land almost? and uh, fed them into the lake and uh, into a stew pond that we created behind the um, behind the bottle. Mm. Did you get did you get a design for that, or did it was it almost something that you just sort of had a go and put it in, or did you uh, get a civil engineer to design it for you? Well, fortunately, we identified somebody, you know, man and digger, uh, who was a civil engineer as well. He, he'd done his um, degree in civil engineering. He said, "Look, it's, it's quite a straightforward process. This this is what I suggest we do." And he got on with it, and he did a stunning job, absolutely stunning job, mm. at a very reasonable price. Um, so, you know, I don't think it can cost you a fortune if you want it to, but if you're savvy, you know, 
look around and see what can be done. Most of it's common sense. Mm. Mm. We had a load of um, drainage ditches that separated the fields, um, which had obviously been cut hundreds of years ago, I would have thought. Uh, and they were choked up, so clearing those out helped drastically. Mm. Um, so you've, so let's just sort of think about this. You've got the late, no, you've got the land drained. You've cleared all the most of the brambles and the like away from it. You've started to do some work around the lake. You've got planning permission to convert your um, barn. So by this point, you're well on the way. It seems to to um yeah to your target to your goal. Um, what about the actual refurb to the barn? And also, there's the um the glamping pod as well, isn't there? Which we've not yeah. touched upon that, yet. That, that was easy. That's absolutely simple. Um. So we engaged a, um, uh, an architect, a nice guy, and he came along, looked at it, and said, well, we can do this, and um, this is what I suggest we have a go at, and he put me up some drawings. And obviously, we looked at certain things, because he wanted to put an extension on the back and a loft extension on the back. That's, that's taking away from what the buildings should look like. So we took them back to basics and, um, and uh, decided on floor plan. Um, and once the floor plan was there, it's just a matter of logistics, finding out what we can do and how we can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fortunately, we inherited uh, um, a sewerage system, which is uh, a large biodigester, um, which had already been put in the house, which is more than capable of coping with um, uh, the waste of water for, the, for all the cottages, really. It was, set, it was set up some time ago for um, up to 26 people, mm-hmm. two of us in the house. Um, so it's more than big enough to, to take the, uh, uh, the waste flow from all the, all the properties. So, so that all, everything everything goes into that, does it? Everything goes into that. The biodigester yeah. has its own little pool, and uh, water when it comes out of it, they tell me is, is drinking quality. Not that I'd actually want to drink it. But <laughs> yeah, I've dealt with those before. Yeah, they tell you that, don't they? You could drink it. Well, they're amazing things. They're amazing things because you don't need to empty them. They don't, don't get any smell from them. They need a power supply, don't they? Yeah, they've got a power supply. Yeah. But super designs. You don't mm. know. All I've got is like a plastic dome on the glass. Um, and then does that, does that feed into the lake as well? Yes. Yeah, the wastewater from that feeds into the lake. Um, as I said, we've got fish in there, which are perfectly healthy. Ducks, geese. Mm. <laughs> it's all good. And then the glamping pod, as you say, that's easy. And you can imagine that's easy because that's something that you're going to buy off the shelf. Um, probably put a little slab on the floor. Well, with pop the it cam- on it. Yes, I mean, we replaced uh, quite a dilapidated old summer house with pod. Um, now, pods come in various shapes and sizes and qualities. So you've got to be careful what you're buying. Um, some look fantastic, but they'll last for about five years. Um, some don't look so good and will last a lot longer. Fortunately, we identified somebody who hand makes them not far from me. Um, incredible guy, actually. Bo McGowan, I'll say his name. Um, he is uh, um, from New Zealand, and he came over here in 1974 to share ship. He's stayed here ever since. And he's got his own piece of woodland, so he grows them with the users. Um, and gets logs delivered to him, and he makes makes his own glamping pods. And this thing's amazing. It's made out of larch. Um, it's lined with sheep's wool, and um, 
beautiful. It's, it's warm all the way through the winter. It's cool in the summer. It's lovely. It has its own bathroom in the back. And it has its own kitchen area and sleeping area. And it sits on railway sleepers. So, yes, you have to have a half surface. We already had a concrete slab there because of the summer house. Um, but if you had like a, a hard shingle surface, that would be just as good. And it sits mm. on sleepers and was delivered fully usable, ready to hook up and off you go. Um, mm. It was plumbed, it was electrified, you know, it had all the electrics in it, everything. Um, so, very nice, very nice quality. And the guy only lives down the road and, you know, that's his guarantee. You can always knock on his door and say, this has gone wrong, that's gone wrong. Nothing has. So... <laughs> All of that work, there's a lot of work there that you've done. I think the glamping pod sounds like the easy bit and almost like the nice cherry to kind yes. of put, put on the cake at the end of all that hard work. Um, and I suspect that there's probably bits more to do and we'll come on to them uh, a bit later. But in essence, now we've got to the stage where you've kind of got this development, it's been built, you've got your house sorted and you've got the four other little properties on it that you can holiday let. So this kind of brings us almost to the, the operational phase of things. Um, just before we get to the operational side of stuff, how confident were you? In There's a lot of work there, and it sounds to me that it's possible that there was a lot more work there than you realised. Um, maybe not. Maybe maybe you absolutely knew what you were walking into there, but it certainly sounds possible there's more there than you realised. Um, how did you budget for all of that work and how did that work out right well we came here uh, just at first lockdown and um, you, you have a hard and fast plan you're going to do this and you know, that's the time scale forget it because it never works to a time scale you never works to a budget and there's always more work and trust me it's been like a roller coaster ride mm. you, know, you start off super confident and all of a sudden you're, oh, you're going over the precipice mm. <laughs> So it's just a matter of holding on, having your plan, having your dream, what you want to achieve, and how you're going to achieve it. Um, we were fortunate, as you know, we haven't had any loans or anything like that to do this place. And we had some property down south that we sold, and I came back from Switzerland with a fair bit of money. Um, so you must have a budget, but your budget is a guideline. Don't try and stick to it because it will mm. always change. And you'll never spend less than you think. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, we expected when we came here to have sufficient funds to um, uh, renovate this lot and uh, still have a nugget of money left over. You, know, you, you always go over budget. But there's always something else. Uh, for us, it was um, things like uh, doing the uh, stew pond at the bottom of the garden. Throughout uh, mm-hmm. it. We didn't take account for the fact that we're living on a slate shelf. Uh, so to sink this stew pond in, you mm. needed a hacker and you needed really heavy machinery to do it, to have mm-hmm. to come to stone. Um, mm-hmm. It's like that. You can never account for it. Um, and also with the stew pond, because we have so much water coming down here, um, it was almost trying to float the line around the stew pond. So we had to make a, another allowance for another train around the stew pond to get rid of the excess water. Um, have you um have you had the place valued yet since um since you've finished all the work? Tell me as much or as little as you want about that. It's a bit personal, isn't it? But um, how's it? Well, I imagine that it's worked out well from a, a value point of view. Well, I'll be quite candid with you. I mean, we we were fortunate when we bought this place because it was five hundred eighty-five thousand pounds. 
it should have been more expensive. It should have been. And for the first couple of months, you thought, you know, where's the body? What's the matter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we then sank another £450,000 into renovating this place. That mm-hmm. cost us just under a million. And we had it valued between one and a half and 1.7. That was before we finished it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that, it's been hard, hard work. It really has. But there is a benefit from it. And that valuation is that is that based on the um, the revenue that no, it earns? Based on the land only. Yeah. So you probably, I imagine, you want to get it valued again once you've really got the revenue uh, at its yes. kind of peak level for twelve months. Yeah. Um, and you may may find that you get an even better valuation. You might do. Um, but you know, this is the first. No, it's not the first time I've tried property development because we had to buy to let. Um, but it's the first time I've, I've done like a grand design, if you like, mm. um, and it has been a grand design. Um, but it's just a matter of holding on to your dream and thinking what you're going to achieve, what you want to achieve, and being prepared to make compromises somewhere along the line, and prepared to invest more money than you thought it would cost you, and having mm. the facility and being able to do it. So you know, start small, then you'll achieve it. Go large and you'll spend lots of money. <laughs> so now you've got it, it's all up and running. It's let most of the time and it's earning money. Just tell us a little bit about the operational side of things, which uh, which is incredibly interesting as well. It's not just about the development, but the actual operational and day to day running of the okay. place. Um, how you know how you let it, where do you let it, who who comes to stay? Okay, well I love social media. Um, so we have a fair few customers that come in through Facebook because um, we do advertise on Facebook. Um, we also advertise through Airbnb, which is amazing. Um, they're really, really good. And for anyone that's thinking of uh, doing Airbnb, go for it. Very helpful. It's a great platform. When we get them. I would say the majority of our bookings through that. Um, we have a number of ladies living locally that uh, assist us in cleaning. Um, janitorial stuff. I had a couple of guys that I call on for doing land work. Um, it works very well. It works very well because we're putting something back into the area as well. You know, Wales, um, if it didn't have tourism, it, it would be stymied. You know, mm. there's a lot of stuff going on here with tourism and some lovely people. You know, people say, oh, the Welsh people are this. They're not. They're great. And um, we've had nothing but you know, help and some. Um, good experience with people up there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, what kind of guests come and stay with you? Is it There must be a certain type of person or people that tend to come and stay in your cottages, or perhaps not, perhaps you get a real mix. We do get a, I mean, we've had people from China, Japan, uh, we've had Polish people, um, we've had French, German, Dutch, um, you know, from far afield. I had somebody that... And uh, they're all tourists, they're all there to... Presumably, they're all tourists. Most are tourists. You do have some people that are coming up to work or, um, uh, you know, have a course that's going on in Carnarvon or Bangor that are looking for somewhere to stay. We did have um, uh, a couple of people that wanted some monthly lets. Yeah, fine. Mm -hmm. Do it. Um, And as I said, we advertise on social media. We advertise on Airbnb. And Airbnb has been great for us. It really has. And um, 
you know, we've had we've had people from all over the place. I mean, we've got people here at the moment that come from Wrexham, which is just up the road. Really. Mm. Um, last week we had somebody that flew in from Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, all over. And that was through Airbnb. Um, and how how one of the key challenges with the short term stuff is to I think you always earn more money per night with a short term rental. That's almost a given. So the challenge is, is to make sure that the places are let for as many nights per month as possible. How are you finding your um, occupancy rates and how how well occupied are the units? Um, and are there high seasons and low seasons? And do you struggle with midweeks? How have you found that so far? Um, well, obviously, in summer period between uh, April and September, that's your busy times. But we found progressively, certainly since lockdown finished, people are coming all around the year. You know, no longer is it just a summer season. So, you know, you have to have, to have what people want to come to. Now, we've always thought we will have our places the way that we would like to go and, you know, if we were, if we were going ourselves. So they're obviously scrupulously clean. They have to be spotlessly clean. It has to have something that people want to have. with burning stoves, um, uh, hot, hot tub spas, a uh, nice entertainment area that they can use for barbecues. So, you know, you have to give people what they want. Um, and make sure you have a personal touch with these people. So we always are here to see them in. You know, we don't do a remote lock-up sort of you know, lockbox or anything like that. And um, statistically, because you're on site, people treat the places better. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so we see them in, we see them out. We always make a point um, after they've been there a day or so, is everything all right for you? Is there, is there something else you need? If you do, you know, don't forget, knock at the house, we're always here. Yeah? Um, so it's the personal touches with people. That's what people like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't be off site so well, sorry, you go for a week down over you because you get bad reviews. And you only need to get one bad review on the platform and that's it, you're done on it. Um, so, you know, making sure that you're giving people what they want, how they want it, places scrupulously clean, and encouraging them to take, like, um, almost be part of it. You know, we've got repeat customers here. We've only been going for about a year and a bit. And we've got some people that have been here three and four times. Mm. So they must like it. But it's almost I mean, like, back and back. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like that. I mean, I had one guy turn around and said, you know, this is like my holiday home. I love it. And making sure that you price it right. You know, there are people that want to rip the living daylights out of people and really take a mickey. We don't do that. We're looking at what is a fair price and what we would be prepared to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Then you get repeat customers. So I'd rather have lots at a reasonable price than one or two at a really high price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like getting that balance right, isn't it? Oh, you've got to. Um, you've got to get it right. We were talking uh, when we had a chat offline, we were talking about obviously you use Airbnb, um, perhaps some other platforms as well, um, and some agent, not you don't use agencies, but you certainly had some opinions about um, agencies um, that you've come across in and around Wales. Um, I'm just trying to get a feel really of the um, the landscape in Wales. We've covered nicely in terms of the, of the planning side of things up in Wales. But in terms of the short term lets as a whole um, in Wales and who are the big players and um, you know, what do these agencies offer and why are they not for you? Right. Um, we looked at agencies 
and there's a number of really big ones out here. Do you want them in? No, I won't. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're exceptionally greedy, in my experience, and um, they'll start off with, uh, say, they want 30% of your uh, take, and then they'll charge you an admin fee, uh, and you haven't got a clue who's coming. Mm -hmm. Just turn up on the doorstep, and you know we have let through agencies and it's booked for two people and four people turn up. You've just got to live with that. Um, and you don't know who they are, and they might leave the place in a deplorable state, and you've got no recourse whatsoever. Um, whereas with Airbnb and Verbo, for instance, um, you know who's coming because they can't have an anonymous listing, if you like. Mm. You can look at the reviews of the people. It's up to you whether you want to set it as a pre-select booking, so you can have it so that people, you can vet the people who are coming, you can look at their reviews, or you can have it on um, instant booking. Now, if you're on instant booking, it means that you've got a good rating with um, Airbnb. Whereas with the other agencies, it's just like going to a holiday company. You know, you don't mm -hmm. know where they're coming from uh, or, or what they're going to do. Um, you know, we, we don't want to have um, party weekends here. We just don't want it. Mm. So have a gang of blokes or a gang of ladies turning up and having a, uh, a little shindig and getting drunk, mm. whatever, on the premises. It's not for that. Mm -hmm. So we like to be able to select who's coming, um, or at least have some knowledge of who's coming, and be able to leave fair feedback on them after they've gone. Yeah, I suppose those agencies, they probably work better if if you didn't live there, you were on oh, yeah. remote somewhere else on the other side of the country or other side of the world. Maybe that would work fine. Yeah, but maybe. The fact, the fact that you're there um, and you want to offer the personal touch... Um, to have the agency almost less involved than you is just completely counterintuitive, isn't it? And it's obviously it's just not it's just not right for you uh, in this situation. And with certain agencies, you know, they will set the price for it. You don't really have much of a say in it. Um, so they'll set a price, and it might be a ridiculous price, so they get bookings, uh, and you end up it costs you money. You know, mm. you think laundry and cleaning fees and the rest of it, and gas and electricity you won't make much money out of it because they're reducing the price so much just to get people through the door, mm, mm. which is not good. Mm. Just actually, just I'm going to just go back there for a minute. You just mentioned electricity, and that was one of the things that um, I should have mentioned to you when we were talking about technical challenges. Did the site have enough power? No. <laughs> no, didn't have enough power, didn't have enough water. Uh, so we had to... Um, uh, get Scottish power to put in another collection, connection rather, in fact, another two connections. Luckily, we had one of their pylons on our land, so it's a matter of fixing up the wire. Yeah. So they came along, charged us a fee, hitched up the wire, ran the cable. Um, I got our, our grounds people to dig the ditches so they could bury the cable, uh, and we put another couple of fuse boxes, separation boxes in. Um, so that's another consideration, which I never thought of at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there must be enough power. Of course there's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that was an extra cost. I think that was two or three thousand pounds. Um, and then water was exactly the same. So we had to lay in another water main. Uh, that was yeah. another thousand pounds. So Where did that come point. from? Was that, did that have to come far or was that? No, luckily it just came from across the road. There was a mains there, but we had to again do the groundwork. So you had somebody to do the groundwork and dig the trenches and the rest of it. Let the water company do it. It would have been prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so they came along, connected it up, and off you go. Yeah. 
with the um with the bigger commercial developments that I do professionally, it's all about uh, what we call the stats, the statutory providers, yeah. and that's you know this the gas, electricity, water, um, uh, and increasingly now fiber, fiber optics to the site as well. Um, <laughs> and the, there you go, then that's, that's the other one, isn't it? It's the fiber. So. Um, yeah. So what I've done is I've had to put in a, a Wi-Fi network. So yeah. Like G, like G, if you have a, a connected aerial that receives it and boosts it down, you've got to have the Wi-Fi, haven't you? Fantastic, fantastic. That's all. That's all great stuff. So like, you've done a magnif- magnificent effort of that over the last. How long has this taken you so far? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. I think you've come a long way in that two and a half years, haven't you, in terms of initially taking on a project to now probably moving into the phase of its beginning to settle down into a day-to-day routine. Is that fair to say? And it's, do you know what? It's exciting. It's, and it's, it's lovely. There's times you think, oh, what have I done here? And there's other times you think, oh, thank goodness I've done this. Hmm. Yeah. So now that is settling down into a day-to-day routine for you, what what does that look like then? Your day-to-day routine, um, uh, and then after that, what's um what's next beyond that? Because um, <laughs> I know you're going to get bored with the day-to-day routine, even though you've not admitted it to me yet. But um, you 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 want the next challenge, I'm sure. So I want the next challenge. I don't know what that's going to be. Day-to-day. Day-to-day routine. Well, first thing you do is get up, have a cup of tea, and then look at the computer and see if you've got any bookings coming today. We maintain a calendar, so it's a year-long calendar. So you look at who's coming in, uh, whether it's a quick changeover, making sure you have staff that are here to help you with the quick changeovers, which we arrange weeks in advance. Um, And basically, the thing runs itself. We don't have an outside laundry, so we don't send our laundry sheets, etc., out. We've got the laundry here inside the barn. So we do our own stuff for that. That's making sure that we've got sufficient laundry, sufficient um, logistics for everything, cleaning materials. Um, we buy that on bulk. Um, so these are things that you have to think about as well. Mm-hmm. For each of the holiday lets, you have to have at least three sets of bed linen. You know, one on, one in the wash, one dry, one ready to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we do that, so we create a laundry, create a laundry room, if you like, storage, um, and just making sure that things like commercial waste, you have to make sure that you've got commercial waste bins, um, making sure that everything's sorted out so that they can come and collect it, because if, if it's not in the, in the format that they want it, they won't collect it, you're left with a, mm-hmm. a solution, nothing to do with it. Um, stuff like that, and then working a bit on the land, although last week or so I've been throwing it down the road, so I haven't done too much of that. Um, and making sure that general maintenance is up to date. You know, if you can't do it, get somebody who can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the next challenge, then, give us a flavour of what what you're thinking of. What's um, getting you excited is the next the next challenge down the line, down the pipe. I'm a, I think I mentioned it to you before. I'm a history enthusiast. I love history, uh, and I have collections. So you look around my room at the moment. I've got a collection of crockery. I've got watches. Sorts of stuff. I'm setting up a little museum. You know, I've also got military, tons of military, I've been collecting military since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I'm setting up a museum for people to come and have a look around while they're staying here. Um, we have the lake that's now. Will that stopped. be on your will that be on your land? 
the museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got a big house here, and I've got a set of rooms for the museum. It's yeah. to, uh, that's great fun. And this will all be local history, will it? Um, some local, some international, you know, First and Second World War stuff, but loads of stuff from that. Um, so there's some of that. But, you know, around here you've got so much history. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to do like a, a, an archaeological survey around here because I was walking around well, the grounds the other day and I found what is, for all the world, it's a ballista shot. Now, I don't know if you're aware of what happened in Wales during the Roman conquests, but there was battles all the way down the Twin Peninsula with the Druids and whatnot, and they drove the Druids over the Holy Island into the last stand. And I found this stone, which has been shaped. You can see where it's been chipped off. It's been made round. Mm-hmm. After me, I thought, that's a cannonball. But they didn't make cannonballs out of stone. About the size of your fist. It's a bit small for that. It's got to be a ballista shot from the time of the Roman you know, conquest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stuff like that. It's just amazing stuff that you pick up and find. I'm surprised they didn't make you do an archaeological study for your um, for your planning permission. Well, do you know something? In hindsight, I'm amazed this place wasn't um, listed. Really, mm. it wasn't. So, you know, happy me. <laughs> well, I think what you've done to it, you've certainly protected it for a generation. So I think uh, the listed building people uh, would have been pleased with what you've done um, regardless, I think. Jeff, how can people get in touch with you? Sure. If people um, like to, to book one of your cottages or just to reach out to you, perhaps find out about the museum yeah. or whatever it might be, what's the best way? Um, well, you can get me on email, which is jeffreywaller8, that's G-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Waller, W-A-L-L-E-R, number eight, at gmail.com. Or you can look me up on um, uh, Airbnb, which is double L E C H space Y space D W R. We've got listings on there. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I think that all the listeners are going to get a lot from it, especially in terms of uh, the project and the challenges that you've had uh, to develop the site that you've that you've brought forwards there i think you've done a great effort so thanks so much for coming on it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure coming from my way thank you so much for taking the time and letting me come on the show and uh, yeah hope to speak to you again sometime thanks jeff bye-bye Take- Okay, if you enjoyed the show, do remember there's a new episode out every Monday, so do come back for more in-depth conversation with short-term rental experts in the United Kingdom. Also, if there are any specific topics you'd like us to cover in future shows, or if you'd just like to reach out for any other reason, please do email us at thefullenglishairbnb at gmail.com.